Hello, everybody. Welcome to all of you. Glad to see you. Glad to be here. I sure enjoy this class. I hope you do, too. But anyway, whether you do or not, we're going to have it, so just lump it. I don't know what that means, but Mom used to tell me that sometimes. Just lump it. Anybody know what that means? It's an old expression, I suppose, from take your lumps. Uh, that's a that's a good way to start a Bible class, isn't it? Talking about taking our lumps. Yeah, really. Oatmeal, gravy, something. Welcome to all of you who are watching us online. Glad to have you too. And we are doing a little review here, thinking back to last week. What did the demon that Jesus cast out in the synagogue call him? That's not worded very well, but. What did the demon call Jesus when he cast him out in the synagogue? Son of God. Uh, is that what he said? 434. There you go. We're getting, getting ahead of us, Preston, on Son of God. I think that's coming. And I made the reference, so I better make sure I know what I'm talking about. The Holy One of God. Exactly, this is it. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know, or I know, who you are, the Holy One of God. Luke put that down. The Holy Spirit said, Luke, write that down. That's what the demon, or demons, because they said we. They used the plural pronoun at first and then a singular afterwards. What do we have to do with each other? Called him Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Interesting stuff, that. What the other demons say as Jesus cast them out? This is later on when he was in Peter's house. Verse 41. You are the son of God. And it's interesting. It says Jesus rebuked them. Not for calling him the son of God but for what they were doing. What notable place did Jesus preach from while at Capernaum and why? Capernaum, what's near Capernaum or what's Capernaum near? It's right there on the banks of the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He was talking to the people and they were pressing on him, and so he said, Hey, let me get in that boat and push out a little ways from land. And he spoke, taught from the boat. What two networthy things followed Jesus preaching? A little play on words there. <laughs> Noteworthy in one, networthy in another. What was one of those things? After Jesus finished preaching, teaching, what happened? What's that? All right. Go out a little ways and drop your nets down. And they said, we've been doing this all night. And we're pros. Well, they didn't say that. But that's what they were. They, do, they did that. They grew up doing that. And they said, we fished all night. We hadn't caught a thing. But because you said so, we'll do it. And they caught so many fish, they couldn't get them in the boat. 
That's one thing. What's the other thing? And this one might be a little harder to work out. Okay, a confession followed by them leaving everything to follow him. So those are the two things that I I wanted us to, to be aware of. He gives them a huge catch of fish, and they leave all of that behind to follow him. How did Jesus heal the leper? He touched him. He touched him. Could he have done it with a word? Of course, he could have done it with a wink or a nod or a thought. But he deliberately touched him, which you weren't supposed to do. And he healed him. All right, anybody got anything on any of that before we go into some new readings? I don't want to be in any way discouraged because we're not moving really fast. I don't think that's necessarily the point. But we're not moving very fast. So we'll just live with that, if that's okay with you. I need somebody to read 17, chapter 5, 17 to 26. Who wants to do that? All right, Janie. And then uh, 18 to 39. We'll just read these two to start with, and we'll talk about these and move on. All right. What did I say? Oh, 5, 17 to 26. I don't know what I said. Chapter 5, the first one is 17 to 26, right? That's what I'm looking at, right? Okay. So I'm... The second one is 18 to 39. And I obviously did not say that. I did? Santa, just do it. Just do it. (laughs) All right. Okay. See? <laughs> uh, a lot of sins washed away here.
rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home to our fine God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sects complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need, doctor, who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friend, friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will, take, will be taken from, with from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece of the new garment to patch an old one. If they do, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And the people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wineskins must be poured into new wineskins. And none of you, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For you say, the old is better. All right, thank you ladies for reading. So there's a house. Jesus is in the house. What's he doing in the house? He's teaching. And what's the issue? Same issue that there was when he went out in the boat. What's the issue? Crowds, a lot of people, a lot of people. But there is a fella who is paralyzed, and this guy's got friends. How good of friends are they? They're willing to tear up somebody else's house to get this guy to Jesus. Is there a lesson in that for us? What are you and I willing to do to introduce someone to Jesus Christ? Maybe it's our imagination sometimes that's lacking. What can we think of? Because if you could think of it, I bet you'd do it. It's just we have trouble sometimes thinking of things to do. But if, if that was... If that was first and foremost on our hearts, I know if there's something I really want to do, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time figuring out a way to do it. And this, to me, this is, uh, this is a challenging passage. Uh, because I might have said, well, maybe when he's done, he'll come out. Just, let's just wait for the crowd to die down a little bit. Not these guys. No, we're going to get up on the roof. We're going to tear this roof up. We're going to let you down. We're going to get you to Jesus. Wow. 
That's a lot of conviction on their part that their friend needs help, number one, but also what are they convicted about? Jesus would make a difference. If they didn't think Jesus would make a difference, I don't think they'd have gone to that much trouble. Now, the details of all that, Luke doesn't, he's not inspired to write all that down. He just tells us what they did. But I think in reading about what they did, we can understand some of what their motivation is and was and what ours, perhaps, ought to be as well. Yes. So, and as we think, and, and, and you know, I, I kind of, I'm kind of like you, I'd like to have another verse, okay? But we, we're not given that. But God's given us the ability to take that and to think about it. And and I'm not so sure that that's what he wanted. And, and it helps us to absorb it because we had to think about it and, 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 and you know, mull it over. You know, if he's just given it to us, then we go on and everything's easy. But if we have to think about it and grapple with it, then it becomes more meaningful. Yes, that's true. And some of us... Some of us are naturally uh, explainers. We want to explain everything. We want to get down to the detail. But so many of the things that Jesus says in answer to questions or situations or circumstances, so much of what he does, it's very brief. And it's like he's, he's giving us the benefit of the doubt that you're going to be smart enough. I gave you a brain. I gave you a mind. You read this and you figure out for yourself what this means. And in the process of figuring that out, you're going to learn some things. And... Along the way, you're going to make some bad decisions about some of this. And in the process of making those bad decisions and figuring those out, you're going to learn some other things. One of those things you're going to learn is humility. You're going to learn not to think of yourself more highly than you ought because you're, you're not going to get all this right. But this is the truth, and he's revealing it to us. And he gives it to us in the perfect size bites. And it's presented to us perfectly. There's, there's nothing wrong with the way the gospel is written. Even though I say that, you know, one more verse, I know there's not supposed to be another verse. There doesn't need to be another verse. But I'm small and I'm ignorant. And sometimes I just want more and there's not going to be more because this is enough. By the way, this isn't a perfect analogy. But how many times have you had a meal and then later on you say to yourself, I wish I hadn't eaten that second helping. There's a reason for that. The first one was enough. You just didn't realize it at the time or you would have stopped. I forget, I was in my 20s when I realized I don't have to eat until it hurts. <laughs> and I need to realize also, I remember I remember this realization I'm not going to know it hurts until, I mean, I'm not going to know it's too late until it hurts. So stop, stop ahead of time. And I wonder if we make this mistake in our study sometimes. We read, and we should read, we must read, but sometimes what perhaps is more important than just reading a lot is thinking about what you read, and not just thinking about what you read, but developing some conclusions about what you read. Because God is giving this information so that you and I will not just have information, but so we'll develop conclusions about the information itself. What should I conclude about these guys who tore the roof up to get their friend to Jesus? I'm not asking you for an answer. I'm just saying, is there something I should conclude? How should this impact my thinking? 
We haven't even gotten to the, the juicy part yet. What's the juicy part? What does Jesus say to resolve this man's physical issue? Your sins are forgiven. What's that? Right. But couldn't he have done it less controversially? What if he had just said, hey, you're healed. Get, get your bed and get out of here. He probably has done that so many times just recently. But he doesn't do that. To accomplish the healing. That's what I think he was doing. He's making a point. He's revealing himself now as, what does he call himself? Verse 24. Son of man. Son of man. Son of man. Now hold, hold on to that thought and go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. What are we doing going to Daniel? I thought this was a study in Luke. You're laughing because you know somebody that sounds like that. Don't, <laughs> don't point any fingers. In Daniel chapter 7. Oh, we got musical interlude. <laughs> In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he didn't even remember the dream, but Daniel came, told him what the dream was, and and told him what the meaning of the dream was. In chapter 7, Daniel is the one who has the dream, and it's a different dream, but it's essentially the same message, and as part of that dream is this. Look at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a a what? Son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. What's Jesus preaching all over the countryside? Gospel of the kingdom. That all peoples... Nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The demons seem to understand all of this. He casts them out, and they come out, and they say, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, the Son of God? And now Jesus refers to himself here as he casts out sin or or forgives sin as the Son of Man. So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's talking about authority. That's what we saw in Daniel 7. One like the Son of Man comes up before the Ancient of Days. And he's given power and dominion and a kingdom everlasting. And so he's here exercising that power, that authority to forgive sins. By the way, verse 21. Is there... Assessment, accurate, what do they say? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Is that a correct statement? That's absolutely correct. What are they missing? That he's God. (laughs) He's God. That's what they're missing. Bless their hearts. 
And I can say that because remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them. If, if he was from Oklahoma, he'd have said, bless their hearts. They don't know what they're doing. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, I'm doing this so that you can know this. He says to the one who is paralyzed, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. So not only is he able now to get up and walk, he's able to get up, take a burden, and walk. And what's the response of the crowd? Struck with astonishment, began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear. That had to be awesome. Because I'm sure everybody who was there had seen all kinds of people in this guy's condition or worse, crippled, lame, halt, and there's no fixing any of that. And Jesus simply says, your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. And boom, there he goes. And I think about what Isaiah said in the 53rd chapter, as he began the 53rd chapter, how does he describe Isaiah, describe Jesus? He's like a, well, let's go back there and read it. If, if you have this picture in mind, because, there, you know, there's all kinds of programs, and I'm not uh, faulting any of the programs that have a, an actor playing Jesus, but a lot of those guys are good looking. And that's not what Isaiah said about Jesus. This is Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who's believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. But he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Isaiah says, through the Holy Spirit, that the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who was sent, the Messiah, this servant, as he's called in Isaiah, there's nothing about his physical appearance that would be attractive to us. This is the guy sitting in this house in the midst of all these people who says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Take up your pallet and walk, and he does it. So it's not like he's there waving his arms and flashes of light and he's in a great robe with a, a turban. Nothing like that. He just a, appears as, a, as just a guy, I'm sure, and he just says these things and boom, it happens. Harold? It seemed like it would be really easy. They could see the man here. Physically, you could see that. When Jesus could say your sins are forgiven, you really can't see that. You've got to try to understand it. Is that real or is that not real? Or just where does he really fit into it? But you can see the healing for sure. Exactly. That becomes evidence that what he was saying was true. That's an excellent point. The healing's obvious. Forgiveness of sin is not obvious.
something about this guy. Look what happened. This is a sign. If we were studying John, John would call this a sign like other things that Jesus did. And it's still a sign even though that's not Luke's focus. Now here's another thing based on what Harold just brought up. We read the book and it says you obey the gospel. What happens to your sin? It's forgiven. John writes, 1 John chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what happens to our sin? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. Do you believe that? Sitting here tonight, right now, this very moment, do you believe that your slate is clean based on the blood of Jesus Christ? Because sometimes we'll get to thinking about things we did through the day or through the week, things we said, things we thought, and we'll feel, well... I can see what it says, but to believe you're actually forgiven is a completely different thing. Now, here's another thing about that. If you don't believe you're forgiven, does that mean you're not? Have you ever had somebody apologize to you for something and you told them, oh, I've I've forgiven you. I didn't even know it was an offense. In some cases, they'll apologize for something. I didn't know you offended me. <clears throat> you're totally forgiven, but they they don't feel that. Maybe that's been you. Somebody forgave you for something you did, but you don't feel forgiven. That doesn't mean you're not. Forgiveness is what Jesus came for. It's the whole point. And he speaks it to this man, and his whole life has changed, and he does the same for you and me. Your sins are forgiven. All right. Might be another way to say that your your sins are forgiven. And you know that they are, but the weight of the reality of what you were forgiven for still weighs heavily on your mind. Right. And, and that might make it seem like you're not, but, but we are. Because God, when it says that he forgets our sin... It doesn't mean that he can't recall it. What? What? It means that he doesn't remember it against us. That's what God forgetting means. But we can't forget it. We remember it. And it's painful. It hurts. And it stays with us. And I think there's a reason for that. On the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? I mean, right. they, they had a tremendous weight. They had the reality of what they'd done. They might not, until that point in time, knew it, but then they saw it and they felt it. And then they were forgiven, but they still knew that they had crucified the Son of God. It stays with us. Our, our condition, our sinfulness, our fleshliness, it's, it's part of our makeup. And that's why God says, through Paul in the letter to the church at Rome, I'm going to count your faith as righteousness. Your faith is not righteousness. Your faith is your faith, but I'm going to count it as righteousness. So when you come up before me, you're good. My son's blood has covered you. It's based on your faith. You haven't earned it. You haven't done anything to earn it. But what you did, you did in faith, and that faith has been made complete by what you've done, and that complete faith I'm counting as righteousness. Philip? Repentance and confession. Absolutely. It's all about facing God with your sin, not hiding anything. Don? I won't bring this up if you're trying to get to the point by the end of the class. <laughs> okay. I will if you're not necessarily. You know. I know, we're moving kind of slow here, aren't we? Well, I mean, because this is, 
it's a controversial thing, so to speak. And I'm not bringing it up because it's controversial, but I'm just bringing it up to, to make a point. I've got to preface this to be careful because you know how I believe in baptism for the remission of sins. I believe in it immediately. Once you have faith in Christ, I, be, I believe that's what we do here on earth. We do that immediately. So I'm not negating any of that. However, this said, I just would like to note that it does seem that faith, you said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. You say that when Jesus says your sins are forgiven you, whether you were baptized in John's baptism or not, which it already says in chapters one and two, the repentant John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins as well. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven right. you, and He hadn't done that yet, would you say, yeah, His sins are still forgiven of Him? So when He did that, He said that you may know that you may know what that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. I'm telling you, you're forgiven. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Exactly. He didn't say, now, as soon as you get a chance, you need to go to priest and take your sacrifice because you're still living under the old law. Jesus has authority. When he says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Now, the law is still the law, and nobody would look at that and say, well, those Jews didn't have to keep the law because Jesus forgave this guy of his sins just with... So, no, that would be a dumb thing to do. You still honor the law that God gave you. When does God forgive you? Does he forgive you at the point that your sacrifice is killed, or does he forgive you when you're taking it? That's up to him. He can do what he wants. By law, legally, technically, we read the book and we say, well, it's, it's when the priest sprinkles that blood, because that's when Leviticus says, it shall be forgiven him. And by the way, Leviticus does say that several times. It shall be forgiven I remember when I was a child, somebody taught me, well, under the old covenant, sins were rolled forward. It doesn't say in Leviticus, and your sins are rolled forward. No, that's like a big, nasty snowball that nobody wants to even think about. Man, no, your sins are forgiven. They're wiped out. How are they wiped out? It's, in our vernacular, we could say, well, it's on credit. Because God knows he's going to pay for it. That's why Romans 1, 16, 17 says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is declared. Because he forgave our sins and paid for it in Jesus Christ. In Leviticus, it wasn't paid for yet. Because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But the blood of bulls and goats was what the law required. And it says when that happens, you're forgiven. But you're forgiven when God says you're forgiven. Now, if people want to take that and run with it and say, well, okay, you don't, need to do, you don't need to do that. Jesus forgave that guy on the cross, so you don't need to do anything else. Uh, no. It's up to God. Don't ever argue whether or not something's up to God. But what he says is, here's my plan. Hear the gospel, the message of my son's death, burial, and resurrection. And then you let somebody, when you've come to faith in my son, bury you in water. And in that burial, you'll be buried into my son's death. That's what Paul writes in Romans. And you'll be risen to walk in newness of life. We know that's what it says. Now, if somebody wants to argue about salvation prior to that, that's up to God. But I know what the book says. So. Okay. You know, I, I look at it from our perspective. That's how we know we got a good conscience. First Peter three twenty one. Baptism now saves you, not putting away 
filled with the flesh, but of a good conscience towards God. It's what God gives us, not something we're doing good enough to make it to heaven. I take a communion on the right day and the right time. I agree with all that, but we're not doing that for God to be saved. Right. He's given that to us for other purposes. He's given us baptism. Right. That helps us. It helps us to know we're in the church. It helps us to know we're with the believers. It's part it of the, the faith once delivered. We're with the believers. But that said, I think we shouldn't judge if they if someone didn't reach the same religiousness as we've reached today, God may have sent from heaven because he knows where he put them to be born. He knows where he raised them up. He knows you know how much light he's given them. He knows, you know, the more we know, the more we're responsible for. The less you know, the less you're responsible for. God's going to judge that perfectly. And from, from the right hand of God, he can still say to someone that we can't hear it, and we don't know it ourselves, even if he said it to us, your sins are forgiven you. We only know it when we're baptized. That's, that's, what we, that's what we've been taught. He's not here on earth to tell us, and we can't hear him, so we certainly can't do it. So we have to follow what he says to do, what his apostles said to do. Right. So, so that's where I think they're wrong by trying to change. I get the argument because it says, well, see, Jesus forgave your sins before he's ever baptized John's baptism. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't like to judge them, but I can say, hey, you're wrong. But I think if we could get it together where our brother didn't just judge it, well, he didn't ever make it to bed. He never heard the word, so you're never going to make it because you didn't get baptized either. You know, we make this judgment as we know how, as if we know how God's going to judge us in the end, or everybody's eternal destiny. We don't. And if, I think if we, if we knew that, but we still teach the truth as we do today to show them, yes, you're wrong sure. on what you're teaching, we might be able to come together a little bit better. But as it is, it just seems like, Ram, ram, ram on this side, ram, ram, ram on this side, and we never can. Well, one of, one of the problems the is somebody's always going to gonna push the line. Wherever the line is drawn in Scripture, somebody's going to push it. I, I can't find a single teaching in Scripture that men have not controverted at some point. And so, and so we have to draw a line to say this, this is what we have to do, uh, and we, we don't... We don't intend to go past what God says, but we also don't intend to leave off anything that God says. So what I was talking to today, we were talking about, I said, I want to be as conservative as the Word of God demands I be, but I want to be as liberal as the Word of God allows me to be, but I don't want to be either conservative or liberal. I want to be faithful to what God says. And depending on... What side you're on, you'll look at somebody else and call them a liberal or a conservative. These guys sitting here who were Pharisees and Sadducees, they probably fell either into one school or the other. There was the school of Hillel and there was the school of Shammai. And these were two rabbis who, who looked at the law differently and they had different ideas about the law. But they could have argued about those details of the law, either from the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel, and completely missed the fact that Jesus is God. And so none of that would mean anything. And when God says, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. So this is what's happening in in Luke chapter 5. And after this, it says in verse 27, it's like he, he gets away from the crowd for a little bit. And he notices a tax collector named Levi that we also know as Matthew. He's sitting in the tax booth and he says to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and he got up and began to follow him. And then Levi gave a big reception for him at his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors. I wonder why. Yeah. But... 
But Matthew's throwing this, or Levi is throwing this reception for Jesus. And the tax collectors are there. And other people who were reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, what did they start to do? They grumbled. Why did they grumble? These people aren't as good as we are. These people are lost. They are doing the judging. They are setting themselves up, and for whatever reason, however they, they do their measuring, it's inaccurate. And Jesus is reasoning with them when he says, Is it not those who are well, or it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick? So, yes, see, there's a sick person right there. Needs a doctor right there. And that's just, that's just logic and reason. He is teaching. He is healing. Who needs to be with this guy more than the most lost people in the world? They are desperate. And if these guys were thinking right, the Pharisees, uh, they would have said, man, we got to gather up these people who are spiritually bereft, who are destitute of spirit, and bring them to this guy because listen to his teaching. He teaches with authority and not like one of us. <laughs> That's what they could have said because that's what other people were observing. But that's not what they were thinking. They were upset. Now here's another passage. They're so close together that gives us pause. Who are we willing or not willing to associate with? In or, it, no, it's not time for a bell already. See, Charles, he won't even raise his head above the thing back there because he doesn't... <laughs> How low will we go to reach somebody with the gospel? Who are we embarrassed to, to be seen with? He has not come to call those who were well, but those who are sick. And as one of his disciples, I need to learn that. And if I consider myself to be well, it's my obligation to try to help those who are sick. And he's not talking about got a cold or the flu. He's talking about sin sick. Now, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a perfect uh, parallel as far as an example goes because most people who are sick can see that they're sick and you can talk them into going to see a doctor, even men. Even men can be convinced to go see a doctor when things get bad enough because they can see it. But a lot of folks who are in sin, it's back to the thing about being obvious. There's, there's no obvious payment due yet. And until the payment's due, you don't realize how bad off you are. That's why Judgment Day is so scary. It's going to be a rude awakening for so many people who seem not to have a clue. And we are the ones who need to be giving them the clue, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, making people aware of sin, not to be ugly and hateful. And every time the church relaxes its scriptural view on things that are sinful, every time we agree with the culture to say, well, it's really not that bad, it, it's okay. It's, people, people are just doing it all over the place, and we need to just accept them for the way they're living and the way they're doing, and 
you know, lying is, it's kind of a cultural thing in a lot of communities, so why don't we just let people lie and don't, don't worry about that. And this adultery, well, everybody's been an adulterer at one point or another. What's the big deal? It's like, what? No? You just... Not one what? Not one job. One job, not one tittle of the law passed until everything's fulfilled. And Jesus, he comes as Savior, but he also comes as the one who's giving us the law, his, his word, by which we will be judged. So I've got a question Listen to Don. All right. And I, I hope I'm not taking it out of context, but he said, God's not here. He said that a couple of two or three times. And, and I'm thinking maybe on a different line, God is here. God's body's here. God's church that he bought with his blood is here. Whenever we take on Jesus, we take on his identity. And that's how people are drawn to us. You know, if you're, you know, get away from us, it is, is it our time? You know, the demons that want Jesus around if you come for us. You know, and if we reflect Jesus, then those that are not following God, they may not want us to be in their presence, but that's how they know who we are. That's God. I, I think God is here, and he's here in, in his people and his body that his son bought and paid for with his blood. Well, and Jesus, Jesus was right there, I mean, in their midst, physically in their midst, and Levi throws a reception, and who's there but society's cast-offs, so to speak, the tax collectors and other people. And it doesn't go into detail, but when the scribes and the Pharisees see those folks, they're grumbling because you drink with tax collectors and who else? Sinners, and they didn't consider themselves sinners. Bruce? Sinner, but you know, people can't talk to us. Are we any better than Levi's got in there? Are we any better than that? Were we not sick, sin sick, before we were taught the gospel? I mean, if we get to thinking that we're so much better and all this stuff, well, you know, he talked to me because I was so good a person. We were lost. I mean, just that's it. Right. <laughs> we have nothing to stand on. No. But we know church, so we're better. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Just, just flip forward a little bit in Luke's gospel to chapter 18, and we'll close with this. This is Luke 18, verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's what we're seeing with the Pharisees at, at Matthew's uh, reception. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Well, how interesting is that? 
The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm putting the inflection in here myself. That's just my drama is coming out in me. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So there, it's like Luke should have put a note there. Uh, See chapter 18. (laughs) He knew it was coming. All right. That's our class tonight. Appreciate you guys. Thank you.